0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and podcaster, film critic, and writer Will Sloan. There's something comforting about schlock. True maestros of the medium like Roger Corman or Charles Band know not to cut corners, give the rubes exactly what they paid for—boobs, maybe bush, gore, and the exploitation of whatever was freaking out middle America at that moment. Now, sure, maybe the covers of the VHS made big promises that the movie itself couldn't possibly deliver on, but if these kinds of movies were for you, boy, oh boy, were they for you. Now, Will, these movies are very much for you. In fact, you suggested both of them today, and I am very grateful because, oh, the rabbit holes I went down. Now, this is a genuine question. When it comes to sleaze and these kinds of films, what separates the like truly great from like the the mediocre? Like how would you differentiate those two?
1: Well, it's a good question and it's not a question I've ever given a lot of thought to because I think goodness and badness are a, a vast color spectrum. <laughs> you know, like i I could say that you know there's there are certain movies like I don't know what are the really canonical sleaze movies, the ones that everybody likes, ones like I don't know, Reanimator or Evil Dead or Showgirls or stuff like or
0: that, or even Porkys to a certain extent, right?
1: There are a lot that you would watch and say, oh, that's a that's a really good movie that falls under the category of a good movie. And then there are movies you might watch, like say, Death Wish Three that <laughs> really really <laughs> delivers in a certain way although you wouldn't you wouldn't leave it and say that's a that's a good movie well i don't know maybe you would i mean again goodness and badness are a huge spectrum like you mentioned a second ago i mean there are a lot of movies that you're watching it for certain exploitable elements whether it's violence <laughs> or nudity or, or or what have you and if they deliver on that but I, there are also a huge number of movies that like you know if if you watch a movie by Doris Wishman, who was one of one of the few female filmmakers specializing in exploitation and sex exploitation movies in the 60s and 70s, and we're going to talk about the other one later on this episode. <laughs> but if you watch Doris Wishman's early movies, like they are they have become documentaries about what America actually looked like in 1965. Oh you look at a blaze star goes nudist or something and you'll see this is what an apartment looked like from someone who was not (laughs) like on the cutting edge of like what the trends were Mm. um but but nevertheless had a particular style you know you look at herschel gordon lewis's movies and oftentimes there'll be sort of documentaries of what florida looked like in the 60s and then there are other ones you know Uh, certain roger corman movies are interesting because yeah he was capitalizing on whatever the trends were at the time little shop of horrors is interesting because it's like what does a movie look like that was shot in two days in 1959 (laughs) uh so i don't know it's a huge vast spectrum and the movies that we're going to talk about on this episode i mean i i would probably be lying to you if i said that that they're they're great <laughs> um, but, but I but they're 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 interesting they're I might even they're they're somewhere on the spectrum of good I think I the re- real reason I'm bringing them to the table is because I think they're representative of something. they each have a filmmaker behind them who has lived an extraordinary life and had an extraordinary career and they're documents of those careers.
0: Well put, Will. And we're also talking today about two people who started their careers in pornography before moving on to exploitation and uh, other genre films when it comes to David Dakota. I mean, his career is all over the place in a really good way.
2: Mm-hmm. I also want to throw out something that I just think just to to the average person, I think probably the average person who listens to this podcast is the same as us. But I also want to say that, like, I think when you watch an amount of movies that we watch, the (laughs) the idea of what a bad movie is changes quite a bit uh, because we see movies like like bad movies to us are like uh, irredeemable. They're either like evil or just like without any substance um and and i don't think the average viewer even sees movies like that
1: and i think you'll agree too that the idea the concept of a bad movie like a movie doesn't necessarily stay good or bad i think both yeah. of these movies primeval and sorority babes are in some ways more interesting than they were in hmm. the 1980s maybe in some ways they work less effectively or in a different way than they did at the time. And then in other ways, you know, things are constantly shifting.
0: There's also, uh, we're going to be talking about this with uh, Roberta Finley, that she is actively angry with people that want to reevaluate <laughs> yeah. her work. So <laughs> there is also that like autonomy of artistry that's fascinating as well. But Cam, you bring up something really good here because one of the tenets of this podcast is not for you is different than not good. Mm. Like there's just two completely different things. And I think um, when you're watching two movies like this, and I mean, content warning all around sure. for all of both of these movies <laughs> like there's there's some real especially when we get into primeval there's some real heinous stuff going on in there yeah if these if these even remotely seem like this genre is not for you i highly recommend joining us for another episode perhaps our jeff goldblum episode I think, that's gonna I be think one at for some you. point
2: becky we've just got to give up on the warnings say, <laughs> <Hey>, listen <laughs> if you don't like these movies don't listen to this podcast it's 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 what we love
0: All right, well, let's get into our first movie today because there are some titles that are just so perfect that you know the moment you read them, there is no ambiguity about what you're going to get. And Charles Band has really mastered that trick. From evil bong to test tube teens from the year 2000, you pretty much know what you're in for. Now, with sorority babes in the Slime Ball o it would seem self-explanatory. There are sorority babes, a bowling alley, and plenty of sleaze, but boy, oh boy, I was actually delighted by the fact that this combines Revenge of the Nerds with Leprechaun. <laughs> it's mm. just like, I'm sorry, what? Now, Cam, let's give the people uh, a little idea of what this movie's about.
2: Sure, yeah. If you're familiar with the works of Charles Band, you will know that he loves a, a tiny l- figure causing chaos. And that's that's really what this is about. As uh, our research showed, this is originally just called The Imp. Uh yeah. and you know, its two week production schedule it was rushed into <laughs> somehow came up with this much better and they said we title. can do better than that. We yeah. can get a better title <laughs> than
1: that if we all yes. put our heads together. And, well, and the word our,
0: "bitchin'" was supposed to be in the title and oh. had to be removed for foreign sales. It was originally the mm. "bitchin' slimeball bolorama," and oh. that had to go. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I was going to assume that slimeballs replaced bitchin', but I love that it was <laughs> bitchin' slimeball. Uh, a- anyway, as you say, yeah, it's like a pretty prototypical kind of '80s sexploitation plot where a bunch of uh, dorks, horny boys, uh, <laughs> decide to peep in on what they believed to be a sexually explicit initiation ritual at a sorority. Uh, They are caught. The kind of sadistic sorority sisters decide to up the ante in a way that I don't think ever pays off, where there's some sort of prank planned at a bowling alley that is owned by one of their uncles, uh, and they send them there to steal a trophy, Uh, but unbeknownst to all of them, one of the bowling trophies is a, a magical cage for a, an evil imp uh, named Impy, and, and yes, he uh, he grants wishes, but of course, these wishes come at a terrible price. Um, and yeah, that's about this it. This is something
0: <laughs> specifically for Alicia Fletcher, who I know will listen to this episode. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about the, the design of this imp on a scale of like Leprechaun and Warwick Davis makeup to munchie.
1: Well, again, I think we have to talk about that big spectrum of good and bad because <laughs> uh obviously this imp was created on a budget, but uh mm-hmm. I love the design. I think
0: it's I do it's a, too. I think he's great.
1: He's got a great personality. I mean, um there are there are two reasons why people still think about this movie, and people do still think about this movie. Mm-hmm. One of them is the title, and the other is the imp. I mean he's yes. a very he's a very special creature. So yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't change him at all. So I guess on that scale I have to put him at Warwick Davis.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i also like i love i don't know becky if, if you've sat down to the uh, pure 60 minutes of gold that it's sorority babes at the slime pop volorama 2 i did but, i did oh it to my myself <laughs> they, you, it you both that, <laughs>
1: watched that yeah, oh my God. Yes, yes. <laughs> well <laughs> i watched it a just, couple months uh, ago yeah, yeah
2: i mean you, that was the same puppet right like they didn't even update it it was <laughs> obviously just like they took it down from the shelf dusted it off and it was like crackling what? and falling apart
1: can I just say something about Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bowlerama 2, which I think came out last year, maybe, or yes. the year before? Yeah. Um, it is directed by Brink Stevens, who is mm-hmm. uh, uh, in this first film. And, you know, no disrespect, because I think she does a good job for the, no doubt, minuscule resources she was offered. Yeah. But the two films, side by side, are an interesting illustration in how much, like, you know, the 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 craft ha- has deteriorated in sort of, like low-budget direct-to-video or direct-to-streaming movies since then. Like, that first one, just being able to shoot it on film gives it so much more kind of Mm -hmm. legitimacy than um, a lot of the stuff being made today.
0: There's more lighting than ring lights. There's interesting. They have time for different angles and setups, yeah. and I think that's a big. Credit.
2: Though I also I was kind of fascinated. Not that, I, and I I think *Sorority Babes* actually has a the original has a bunch of great actors. But I was interested to see that I think nowadays with you know TikTok and whatever, it was interesting how the quality of like comedic acting was a bit higher. And I think uh, credit to Brink Stevens too, who is kind of a great comedic actor. But yeah, like like you say too, to go back to the imp itself, uh, it's made by this guy Craig Catton, who was. involved in like real movies like the stuff and ghostbusters uh mass of the universe he was on the crew of jurassic park like like this is also a time when these guys were just hanging out and you could kind of call up a, a pretty great effects person and say you know we got this budget and obviously the imp is the star of the movie, so you'll you'll spend a little more money on him.
0: The Slimeball Babes 2 is um, part of a series that they were doing uh, with uh, Charles Bannon, Full Moon Entertainment. This is Empire Entertainment, which would then kind of become uh, mm. Full Moon Entertainment, which sort of already babes is now. Um, but they were doing 10 films They're on, like, micro micro-budgets, and they were going to yeah. be releasing them back to back to back to back.
2: And I think it's the only one that came out, actually. I, I think that it all got botched because of COVID. Bring
0: up uh, Brink-Steven. Um, she is also now like a regular director for Charles Band. She does the Evil Tune 4 as well. It looks like she's on the slate to do a couple more. The Evil Tunes movies look bonkers and uh, I think this is actually probably the point we should get into Charles Band and Full Moon Entertainment and kind of what exactly they do because their stuff is like out there. Uh, I think probably their best known and most successful franchise is Puppet Master, yes?
1: Mm. I think that's fair to say, yeah. I mean I, this one, Sorority Babes, I first heard of this movie Back when I was a burgeoning cinephile in the eighth grade, (laughs) I bought a DVD for a very early Charles Band movie called Laser Blast. Don't know if you've Mm. seen that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, An MST3K classic. Uh, There were some trailers on it for this movie, for uh, Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, which Mm. stars... Shannon
0: Tweed! Shannon Tweed!
1: And a young Bill Maher in a rare uh, (laughs) film performance. As well as one called Beach Babes from Beyond, which stars Jacqueline Stallone, Joe Estevez, Don Swayze, <laughs> and Joey Travolta, oh, and wow. and wow. and Burt Ward. So you know. <laughs> oh,
0: okay.
1: <laughs> and anyway, I just remember all those trailers had nudity, which I had never seen in a trailer mm. before. It just blew my my childish mind. But um, anyway, yeah, Charles Band ever since the 70s, has been this wildly prolific producer of low-budget exploitation movies. He sort of started at the tail end of when movies like that were being released theatrically, but he really is... I mean, in terms of his public image, he sort of picked up where Roger Corman left off in the video era. I know the two of them worked concurrently, but like when you think of direct-to-video stuff, you think of Charles Band. I think he's the credited producer on, according to IMDb, 379 movies puppet wow. master is a wow. huge one ghoulies castle freak from beyond uh most of them aren't quite that good um <laughs> yeah. you know uh he, he some of his own directorial credits include the ginger dead man with gary Busey yeah. and the evil bong series um <laughs> i know that like he's been up he's been down he has surfed with every trend of the home video and now streaming market. There was a time in the 90s when he had a distribution deal with Paramount, believe it or not, doing family films. Probably the best known one from that era is Prehysteria. That was a oh, video yeah. store mm. staple. Um and now, I mean one of his more recent films is uh, with within 3 weeks of the lockdown occurring in 2020, he rushed out a movie called Corona Zombies. <laughs> which I I haven't seen it. It sounds like it might be a little, um, you know, not not the greatest movie ever made, but no. it, it's not about being a good movie. It's about, mm. you know, he, he loves, he actually loves being an exploitation filmmaker. He loves the fact that he did that. He loves the fact that he follows in the Roger Corman tradition of rushing out a movie to match the news cycle and actually getting it out there and, and uh, getting some press about it. So a very colorful figure, I think somebody who's been on the brink of bankruptcy many times and yet continues, uh, continues making stuff.
0: But like Corman, he also has his stable of directors that he goes to, and these are people he knows he can rely on to, like, call up and be like, hey, we have 12 days to make this thing. It's called The Imp. There's no script. Go. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, David Dakota obviously had proven himself at this point that he would be able to handle uh, something yeah. like this and, and completely I, transform it.
2: I think from his talk, it's like he he proved himself before the film had even be fin- been finished. I think he was, said he was editing sleezoids at the time. Uh is it sleazoids what's the it's, uh, uh, creepazoids creepazoids that's yeah. yes they all have same the diff, same diff really <laughs> yeah uh, but and he said like dakota or, or uh charles band was just like all right yeah this is pretty much done <laughs> like yeah i've got this <laughs> thing it needs to be done in two weeks and i also think it's worth saying like both of these guys um they're the kind of exploitation people that seem really nice like, it huh. seems like people like to work with them. Uh, Dakota especially, I think he, he continues to work with all these uh, great scream queens. He's very big on like, oh, I, I, you know, called up X or Y actor who's been a little forgotten. I know now he, he's very big on the Lifetime movie channel, working a lot with Vivica A. Fox and Jack A. Harry, where it seems like he's just the Jack A. whisperer now, kind of. Yeah, uh, I, I, and know, yeah. I know, uh-huh. well, I know.
1: Well, I interviewed him some years ago, and I remember him telling me this story about how um, – This actress, Christine DeBell, who's known for, she was in Meatballs, she was in The Big Brawl with Jackie Chan, and she was in the X-rated Alice in Wonderland, which you might have heard of uh, as Alice. (laughs) And she disappeared for like a, a number of other movies too. And she disappeared for, you know, 20, 25 years to raise a family. And she thought, oh, what if I, uh, what if I kind of get back? What if I, you know, submit a resume and a headshot in a few places? And he like calls her up and he's like, are, are you, are you actually Christine DeBell <laughs> from, from Meatballs? <laughs> from, from, and, and she's like, you, you know who I am? He was like, yeah, of course yeah. I know you are. You're a star. And, you know, she's been in a ton of his movies, including A Talking Cat. Which
0: is maybe, maybe, isn't his it most that like seen? question mark exclamation <laughs> yes. point at the end? <laughs> yeah,
1: I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. A talking cat?
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: and how can you not love a guy who, you know, welcomes Christine DeBell back like. Like, you know, Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, you know, just a full on uh, comeback. And he's like that with uh, a million other people. He loves working with, you know, Eric Roberts and uh, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever big stars uh, that he that he has in his movies.
0: I got to say, as a as a woman watching this, sometimes I can be a little like. Okay, that's crossing like a line into deep discomfort for me. I never actually felt that in this, and even though like you're watching these young women that are like nude and covered in you know the traditional sorority spanking that happens here with the paddles and the the whipped cream, everybody seems kind of game. Like no one at any point, and as far as I know, no one has come out afterwards and been like, "This was a nightmare shoot. I didn't want to do blank or take off my clothes or whatever." Everything seemed pretty pretty comfortable. But I think the biggest thing was that. There's a moment where um, the, the imp, it's a monkey's paw story. The imp grants wishes and the wishes go horribly wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, a moment where um, one of the women is uh, in this, like, lusty, wish-fueled uh, haze going, uh, uh, going after this, the young man. And the young man doesn't want to do it because he's just like, this is not consensual. You will not be cool in the morning. We need to stop. And I was like, wow. Like, that's like... You don't see that in movies like Meatballs or Revenge of the Nerds or any of those kinds of, even Animal House. You don't see that kind of discussion about that sort of consent. And I was like, okay, that just totally shifted my point of view of this film. And even Linnea Quigley doesn't take her clothes off. She's just a badass as spider for the rest of the film.
1: What is this,
0: Midnight Wimp Bowling League?
1: I absolutely hear you. And I mean, I can't speak to every David Dakota movie, but the ones I've seen... I do think there's there's a different spirit than, I mean, if you consider the movies that Roger Corman was producing in the 80s and 90s, And very few of those movies, like Roger Corman's remembered for his 60s period, but people don't remember the 90s ones because a lot of them are bad and a lot of them, too, are quite ugly. There's a lot of kind of like serial killer, hunting strippers type movies that he made in the 90s. A lot of, you know, kind of sexual violence, that sort of thing. Now, I would not... I would not call sorority babes and the slimeball bolarama a feminist text or anything. No, <laughs> no. But but there's a, there's a kind of feeling of like harmlessness to it. I mean, the perspective is, you know, one reason why I think this movie has survived a little bit is because, you know, the the main characters it's divided between the dorky, like nerdy guys. And the sorority babes, and the sorority babes are uh, quite confident. They're quite, um, you know, they're much stronger characters, at least than the dorky guys are. And if you're like an eighth or ninth grader who's watching this movie on TV, um, you're probably a little dorky yourself, and Mm -hmm. uh, you're seeing it from the from the perspective of these like dorky guys who are kind of being like kind of embarrassing themselves. It's a different perspective, I think, than, yeah, some of those some of those uglier Roger Corman type movies that were being done at the time. There's a there's a general sense of like, you know, even though it is a leering movie that has a lot of nudity and stuff like that, it's it's just a little goofier, a little sillier, a little a little more, um, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have that ugliness in it.
2: Yeah. I think
0: the kills are super fun too, and they also like that they are bowling alley related <laughs> like sure, I, love, yeah. I love the guy who gets his head taken off in the ball washer and then they bowl with it because of course they do they have to mm-hmm. like yeah it's 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 great.
1: I also think all the women in this movie are allowed to be very funny and yes. uh Lania Quigley. You know, throughout her career, I mean, certainly she was well-known for all of her nude scenes and all that. But, I mean, I think she's very funny, uh, a, a very enjoyable screen presence in all of her movies beyond that. And as for David Dakota as a filmmaker, I mean, I, I'm not sure if the fact that he's a gay filmmaker has a lot to do with this, but some of his later movies, jumping way ahead in his career, a movie like 1313 Cougar Cults, yeah. which... You know, he made all these movies called Thirteen Thirteen. That was ostensibly the name of the house that they were set in, but they were actually titled that <laughs> because numbers at that time yeah, on, came on up
2: demand <laughs> yeah. on the algorithm. We come up
0: first.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they were these sort of like weirdly homoerotic movies about, you know, twinkie young men who wander around this mansion in tidy whities But uh 1313 Cougar cult has, you know, Brink Stevens and uh, Michelle Bauer and uh, Linnea Quigley all in their you know 40s or 50s uh, in this movie as well so there's this kind of bizarre sort of bisexual tone to it um, they're not nude um, but the camera loves them and oh. you know he's not as a filmmaker he's not somebody who's like afraid of like an older woman as well um, mm-hmm. he's you know.
0: the Ryan Murphy of like sleaze yeah. <laughs> cinema is yeah. that what we're saying here sure I-
1: yeah I mean he's uh you know he doesn't he doesn't have the same gaze the exact same gaze that a lot of exploitation filmmakers do even though of course you know he's made a ton of movies that are delivery systems for nudity because you know he's uh that's what his job is yeah that's yeah. what his job is but he's yeah. he's done more than just that
2: yeah and I do think you're right too that this movie also has like a bit of a queer reading just because it uh, i the one of the Articles you shared, Becky, was kind of about how it was, it's like almost a parody of these kinds of movies. And I think, in the way that it is, is like the horny guys are so horny, it barely <laughs> makes sense. And the women are so over the top. And then you kind of throw in. Uh, Linnea Quigley is this punk that's just kind of like, what are you doing to <laughs> so, like everything that's happening? And I, I think that really works. And, and yeah, it's this kind of like over the top heterosexual weird uh, exploitation movie where it's not—you don't really imagine anyone's really getting off to any of the sex stuff in this, you know? It's—it's because it's, it's so silly. Um, oh, I, and, and I'm and sure
1: I, I could have managed it if I was, you know, <laughs> in yeah, seventh grade. I, I mean, I, I, also... I, I could have found a way, but I, I hear you. <laughs>
0: There's a pause button. Button. Yeah.
2: Yes. Dakota also says that he, he thought of this movie as a purposeful fever dream because he's like, this movie is meant to play in the middle of the night when you're like not really paying attention to what's happening. And I, <laughs> and I do think it works very well with that in mind.
0: Well, it was one of the the number one uh, rated episodes on USA's Up All Night, which was a late night movie show hosted by Rhonda. Uh, and Rhonda was extremely sexy, usually wearing some sort of lingerie or type uh, tight outfit. She often delivered her segments from a bed, like completely. Think of her like a non punny, non gothy Elvira, like very similar in that kind of kind of way. Well, yeah, still puns, but less less uh, uh, black, and you know, not as many horror movies that just kind of you know. Uh, these exploitationy, sexy sort of films, and she hosted one. Her and Linnea Quigley actually used to be on the show all together all the time. They do these little bits together. But the one uh, where they were presenting this film along with Meatballs Three was like their number one, one of their number one rated films. Like people, are, people really love tuning into that episode, and it's cute. You can see the segments. You can't see the actual movie, but you can see the segments posted on YouTube if you want to watch them. Kind of get silly together. It's it's adorable.
1: Now, did that episode also have the show's other regular co-host, the screen's master of sensuality, uh, Gilbert Gottfried?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it did not have him. Nah, <laughs> but I love that he was a regular staple on that. There are pictures. It, he's in the intro of her, like, kissing him and things like that, and him just doing that little giant grin mug thing he did.
1: That's a show I'd like to know more about because, I mean, I it was a little before my time, so I never saw it. But I know it was part of this, like, almost revival in – you know, in the fifties and the sixties, there were all those TV shows where they'd show old horror movies, and then there'd be with a host Zachary
0: and yeah. all that.
1: Goulardi, Vampira, that sort of thing, and then I guess with Elvira, it had this um, kind of snarky relaunch in the eighties and nineties, where it was the same kids who would have watched those shows grown up. And, um, you know, like Mystery Science Theater is probably an offshoot of that. I, I can imagine this show being, or this movie, Sorority Babes, being particularly good for that show because, you know, it was obviously made with a kind of sense of humor. And, uh, yeah, it would fit right in.
0: Yeah, they do sketches and things like that. And they did do a lot of horror. Like, they would do, do like, the the old classic 976 Evil, which is <laughs> directed by Robert Eglin, which is one of my personal favorites because it's just wild. So they, they do stuff like that. But then they, uh, I mean... Um, the uh, Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death definitely would have been on the roster. It, movies like that, right? So you would be tuning in, I think it started at midnight and it would go to like three in the morning and that would be what you'd be tuning in for. And you'd get these like really cute, sexy little sketches in between of Rhonda and uh, whoever her guest happened to be, usually from a bed. Uh, that was kind of her 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 main place. So it's if watching it, like she's a great host. She's really funny. She's really clever. And she really brings a lot of, insight into the films like she would try to have people on who are from the films you're getting like little inf- uh little uh interview bits as well which were pretty fun i i'm actually was pretty impressed by it i'd never heard of it before because we didn't really get the usa network here um mm-hmm. but it was uh it was neat to see definitely a staple of and something like you don't really have now with streaming these like mm-hmm. we're going to present these movies with a context in a frame
2: yeah Shutter does the Joe Bob Briggs stuff still, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, and I do think that that's a part of, when you talk about Charles Band and David Dakota in this era, that is a big part of it, like the pay cable exploitation era is a part of it. Charles Band was also, I think, very instrumental in kind of coalescing a lot of the horror culture. Uh, Full Moon kind of had this thing where, you know, at the start of your VHS or the end, it would say, like, don't forget to order your Full Moon shirt, and it would kind of, like... Could make this whole brand of like you being a full moon fan is a thing and then then i think he we, yeah he sold it to stuff like up all night which just kept it alive for so much longer. So something that's like a trash movie like Invisible Maniac has its fans because I think it played a hundred times. The
0: Killjoy series is a whole thing, which is like oh, an evil yeah, clown sure, series. Yeah. And they've got uh, they've got um, uh, action figures for that. Like oh, that's yeah. a whole I thing. I mean,
2: there's also like a whole Charles Band in the black community, like interesting <laughs> interaction that I, I, is above my pay grade. But he, huh. he's a fascinating guy.
1: Shows like USA up all night. I think one of the appeals to them, uh, or one of the reasons why they were made as well, is because um, late at night they were just like slot fillers. You know, mm-hmm. I, I heard an interview with Joe Bob Briggs where he said that he he never had a he he never did a show that had a specific time slot. It was like okay, well you know you start at midnight <laughs> and then you finish when you finish because it was just hours to fill. <laughs> yeah. I think that's become a bit of a lost art now because. You know, post Reagan deregulation made it so that like um, infomercials became much more lucrative for TV channels than than this kind of thing, uh, which is a shame. Although Cam, as you said, Joe Bob Briggs is now very popular on Shutter again, so um, yeah, which is nice to see.
0: Well, and a lot of this has moved to YouTube, right? People doing watch-alongs and mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Like, that's just sort of the, the like, the people are cultivating smaller fandoms rather than this is the only thing that is on on the one of, like, 25 channels, so this is what we're going to watch. Damn. So when we're talking about Dakota, Will, like, we, we've kind of just glimpsed at what he's doing, but he started in pornography, uh, and he's now, like, this incredibly prolific filmmaker. What else should we know about him and kind of what he does
1: Yeah, I mean, he started in pornography. Before that, I think he was a production assistant to Roger Corman. Uh, His first, you know, mainstream directing job was for Charles Band. It was Dreamaniac. And, I mean, throughout the 90s, I I think making films was much harder. Um, Certainly making films with, with, like, film... Um, And Mm. getting that video distribution deal was was a little trickier. And he was one of the people who could do it. So he just Mm -hmm. worked on and on and on. Cam, I know that you watched his labor of love film, one of his few one for me movies uh, called Leather Jacket Love Story from 96 or 97, which I think is like kind of a beautiful film. It's a, a sort of it's his attempt at like a new queer cinema movie. And uh, what did you think of it?
2: I thought it was, yeah, very charming. I I admit that with both people, I kind of went back to their pornography to see, like, where is the germ? And I will say that David Dakota's pornography, uh, listen, if you want to watch pornography, it's fine. Uh, But it (laughs) it does not really have the authorial stamp that I think we'll find with our next filmmaker. Um, It was, you know, acceptable gay pornography uh, with maybe a little more plot than some other ones did. But, uh, but but yeah, yeah. Le- Leather Jacket Love Story was very charming and I think just because I do think he's like a pretty good director. I think he's just always under bad circumstances and like you say, he he came up at like a really good time with Corman. He was a PA on Galaxy of Terror with, and that's like, uh, you know, you're working with James Cameron. You're working with like all the big people. He said he was also a PA uh, under Ken Russell for Crimes of Passion. Wow. Uh, which is like one of his big inspirations. So it's like he 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 worked on a lot of huge sets. It sounds like, and, and I think uh, Leather Jacket Love Story, you get to see a bit more of yeah, just like a guy not worried about exploitation and more interested in his own thing. And I think especially there's something really interesting. Um, Because I think that movie really threads the needle between there's so many queer comedies of that time that just suck because they're just trying to be like (laughs) palatable to straight audiences. And this film also features, you know, I think beyond softcore sex scenes, like uh, borderline hardcore uh, sex scenes, which mm-hmm. is just such an interesting mix. And, and I think it was you or somebody else we know on Letterboxd was saying it, it's kind of like a Bruce LeBruce movie almost, but mm-hmm. so much sweeter and nicer because he was just obsessed with, he's like, I just wanted to do a nice love story. And I love also that he calls, uh, he, he doesn't really like to talk about his pornography days, but he calls them his early love stories, which yeah. I find yeah. very <laughs> charming. Yeah.
1: Well, I I love his career because, I mean, I wish there were more movies like Leather Jacket Love Story, obviously, but I love his career that, like Charles Band, he sort of ebbed and flowed with the market and followed the market mm-hmm. wherever it is. So if you look at his career, you his career is like a roadmap of what low-budget exploitation filmmaking has been at any given time. The stuff he was making sort of like eight or ten years ago, like A Talking Cat or the 1313 movies. I mean, in some ways that's my favorite era of him because they feel sort of they feel like they were made subconsciously. It's like he's working so fast and, you know, with so little resources that these movies just come out that, you know, are so cheap but like say interesting things about him. They're these bizarre, sort of homoerotic move like a talking cat has these incredible like homoerotic elements to it even <laughs> though it's this like children's movie and and that just feels like <laughs> just feels like the work of somebody who's like working so fast they can't help themselves uh there's no filter yeah and and that's powerful and now th- and now that he's making all these like lifetime movies all these yes. uh all these like hallmark christmas movies uh that's <laughs> interesting so, I mean, I'm not going to watch all those movies, but it's interesting that he's making them. I always like to keep an eye on, on what he's doing to see where the market is
0: at. That is actually a great point, Will. Like, this is definitely someone who you can indicate where is the money for the low-budget filmmaking Mm -hmm. flowing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Lifetime and Hallmark is just pumping out film after film after film. And it would make sense that he would then transition there because the VHS market doesn't really exist. The VOD and that that sort of streaming and that demand for all of those movies as quickly as possible is.
2: It's interesting because I was looking at the run of the Vivica Fox movies, and I think he made, like, 20 in one year. Like, if you look at the years (laughs) they came out, he might be working faster than he ever has before, but at the same time, I know we we got to for the year in film show briefly interviewed Jim winarski and, and we you know you we, you kind of wanted to pick at him to be like, how do you feel now that you're making like Hollywood Dog instead of whatever you made before? But I think like Dakota, what I found was that he's there's something to like, you know, these guys are uh, a a level passionate about it. So like, you know, he'll he'll say, hey, I got to work with Tom Berenger," or hey, you know, like like uh, Winarski really loved the dog. He's like, you know what? I love making those dog movies. That dog was a delight. Uh, We don't make them anymore because the dog got a little old and I don't want to push it. And we're like, oh, what a sweet thing to say. And I think David (laughs) Dakota would say the same thing. Like he would be able to name something from every one of those Fivik A. Fox movies that charmed him or a person he got to cast. Like you say, well, he's obsessed with like old TV and old film and where are these actors and what are they doing? And, and that's, that's a really nice thing.
0: I think that is the perfect place for us to move to our second film where, uh, the auteur isn't quite as excited about her previous works. So we're going into primeval and that's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam.
2: Yes, Becky. <laughs>
0: so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, Like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that ever Everybody's seen. Everybody's going to consume it differently, and I think that that's why we like to get on like a diversity of voices because uh, quite often. Yeah, you just don't expect what you expect and I and I think it's been like very satisfying.
0: Yeah, and I mean, then you get an episode like uh, Diabolic Magazine's incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain and I don't think I've heard the word uh, Beatles butthole used so intellectually before, <laughs> nor do I think I ever will again. And of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can't of course name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests. So I'm going to let you do that right now. But if you want to hear more, of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuiteca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. Our second movie today was directed by a woman whose life and career is, quite frankly, fascinating. I don't know if her movies are for me, but I do appreciate they exist, and boy, oh boy, do they really go for it. She has a quote about her work. I made these films for two reasons. One, to make money, which I did. And I like to shoot as a cameraman. That's what I liked best, being behind the camera. That's right. She not only directed over 40 films, she often acted as her own cinematographer as well as operating the cameras for others. But the most important thing is that she is there for the money. She has no interest in people recontextualizing or reevaluating her movies into some artistic endeavor. She does not consider herself a pioneer. She is not a feminist. It is pure sleaze for profit." So that having been said, this movie is really gross and trigger warner, trigger warnings for sexual abuse, abduction, assault, and satanic rituals. Okay, Will, you introduced her to me as the great Roberta Findlay, and I, having read about her now, totally agree with that nomer. What makes her great?
1: Well, I do think she's made a lot of interesting movies. I'm a particular fan of Tenement, which I think is a really great horror movie, and A Woman's Torment which is a really good kind of repulsion like porn film. Um you know, she was obviously a very talented cinematographer as well. I think a lot of what makes her interesting you hit at in that introduction. The fact is I mean, no matter how much she resists being characterized as a pioneer. And I, I do wonder how much of that, like her orneriness, is just kayfabe, because mm. she does like she submits to interviews. She did an interview for this new academic book about her work that's coming out by Whitney Straub. Um, she she attended a Tribeca Film Festival screening of tenement. Um, you know, she's she is visible. I I think she's probably, you know. Uh, she feels the need to be modest about them, but I have to assume that on some level she likes this like resurgence of interest in her movies. But no matter how much she outwardly resists it, like she was one of the only woman directors in porn and exploitation in the 70s and 80s, and that's inherently interesting. And she wasn't just a director, she was an entrepreneur. She was very much involved in the production and distribution of these films. And... She is a thorny and difficult figure because, you know, not only does she not consider herself a feminist in mo- most of her public statements, she comes across as quite anti-feminist. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of statements she's given where she said things to the effect of, oh, I, I never hired women on my films. I would never I, I don't like women. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she would say she would give some more pragmatic reasons for that as like, well, you know, women, they're too small to handle the big equipment, that kind of thing. I mean, she herself is living proof. I mean, she's not a, a large person. She's living proof that they can handle the equipment. But yeah. nevertheless... It's one of the
0: quote-unquote excuses that women couldn't do cinematography yeah. for a very long time because the cameras were too big and the rigging was too big, et cetera, which, as we know, is bullshit. Because clearly, she she is a very petite woman from what I have seen and was perfectly capable of doing it.
1: A very talented cinematographer. And I mean, yeah. she, her, her movies... Very wildly, she's made some movies that I think are genuinely quite morally objectionable. Mm -hmm. There's one in particular called Shauna, Every Man's Fantasy, which was this Mm. attempt to cash in on the suicide of the adult film performer Shauna Grant, which, you know, a very tasteless and noxious movie. I mean, she's also made, you know, again, not considering herself a feminist, she's also made a film called Blood Sisters, which I think would certainly. Pass the Bechtel test if you applied it to it <laughs> um I was reading this uh kind of interesting analysis in rue morgue on her films where the author whose name escapes me I apologize, but you know she the the author position said that there were a sort of set of maybe unconscious um themes that emerge uh, the author said findley's films uh have a critiques of the inability of the patriarchal order to a, to answer to submerged female desire, and says Mm. they're featuring and focusing on a memorable set of female protagonists besieged by an eternally recurring supernatural terror. Uh, You know, and and that made her horror films, the four or five of them, a kind of thematically cohesive unit. Now, I doubt she was uh, conscious of that, Mm. uh, but nevertheless, I mean, she was this female filmmaker making movies that you know, focused on these female characters, and uh, what do you do with that? So, I'm yeah. not interested in like recuperating her as some kind of like unproblematic, um, <laughs> you know, great <laughs> filmmaker. But she is an interesting person who's lived an extraordinary life, and she was one of the only examples of mm. um, her her archetype. So. Uh, a subject worthy of discussion and study.
0: And one of the things that is levied at her as a compliment quite often is that her, even though, like, this is very, like bottom of the barrel exploitation like it gets real gross her stuff does have this artistic flair like she's doing making these choices that are extremely cool I watched uh, Home Sweet Home um, and that one is like this little girl that's being haunted by these these horrible ghostly visions and things and uh, it looks really cool and it doesn't have to look like that like even on these low budgets she's still doing these incredibly cool uh, camera tricks and moves like everything looks neat same within this one like the black masses and the orgy at the end looks really Mm -hmm cool mm-hmm. like it, it it's does got, like yeah. shades of rosemary's baby
1: it, it does and i i know on her commentary track she talks about liking rosemary's baby a lot and mm-hmm. uh, again a woman's torment borrows a lot from repulsion so she was certainly you know interested in doing some polanski-ish things with her camera <laughs> i mean she left porn in the 80s For a couple of reasons. The most obvious one was, uh, as she said, you know, the shift from the theatrical market to the video market made the profit margins much smaller. So it was the logical financial next step to go into horror films. But as modest as she is about her achievements, something that comes up in interview after interview is she didn't really like directing the sex scenes. She liked the dialogue scenes and Mm -hmm. she liked working with the camera. And I have to assume that, you know, if she had gone into the video market in porn, she realized it would have been pretty much only sex scenes and would have had less creativity with the camera. And I think that that can only mean that, you know, uh, she did take pride in her work and um, liked, liked to have that room for creativity as well.
2: I also think that, like, one of the things that makes these movies stand out is that she keeps one foot in the exploitation realm a lot more than directors i feel like this this 80s horror boom it was kind of famous for you would pick up a, a vhs and it would have like a sexy picture and a and a violent picture and then not deliver that whatsoever and i think her her films have like bordering on pornographic sex and, you know, decapitations and violence, they, they really deliver what they said they do uh, in a way that is interesting. And, and yeah, it also makes me think that she did have some care for like knowing what, give the people what they want, you know?
0: Well, that's how you're going to make the most money. That's what makes sense, mm. right? They'll keep coming back. That's what Corman did. Uh, well, let's get back to her early years because uh, uh, Michael Findlay is a very important part of the early uh, directorial debuts. And he was the one who was the cinephile who sort of introduced her to all of these films. Uh, Will, do you want to get into to that a little bit
1: for us? Yeah, she met him when she was attending New York City College in the mid-60s. He was about 10 years older than her. And um uh, he would put on silent film screenings. She was an accomplished pianist who would accompany those screenings. Together, they became part of this very small group of New York filmmakers making soft course exploitation films. Again, uh, there really weren't that many because it wasn't easy to make a movie back then. Uh, um you know they pooled the money i guess to self finance the first one and then from the profits from that they'd make the next one and so on and so on
0: i'd like to point out that one of these movies is 1965's Satan's Bed which stars a very young yoko ono
1: yeah i'm i'm glad you bring that up um you, you know, it's a little it's a little disappointing that they didn't actually film the yoko ono footage uh, apparently they acquired this unreleased movie called Judas City where Yoko Ono mm. played a Japanese immigrant who became prey to drug dealers. Um, it was a movie that was never able to be sold, and uh, Michael acquired the footage, shot a bunch of nudes uh, nude scenes. Sorry, I, I, I accidentally said nude scenes, but that is what he shot. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Freudian slip, but also very accurate. He shot nude scenes and got it out there, so... I mean, I think she has since met Yoko Ono because Yoko Ono has recorded at the Seer Studio, along with which we'll every, get into on along with next every chapter. other notable. Yeah, but um, for the most part, the two of them made what were called roughies, so they were black and white, sexploitation exploitation movies that emphasized violence and sadomasochism. That probably makes the films sound more unpleasant than they are. If you see them today, they play a little campy. They include The Touch of Her Flesh, The Curse of Her Flesh, The Sin Syndicate. There's one that she's in. She plays the lead character called Take Me Naked. And um, I have a quote here from Roberta who says, Michael made a series of demented, crazy, they're psychotic movies. I mean, he should have been locked up. He took out his frustrations or whatever in the films. It's a good thing he never killed anybody. It was all about murdering women. That was his fantasy or desire or something. But he wasn't like that at all. He was a sweet, gentle soul. I grew to hate him, but it had nothing to do with the work. So <laughs> that—that's what she says. I mean, uh, the movies, those movies, like a, a Touch of Her Flash or whatever. Again, I'm, I'm making them sound more difficult to watch than they are. They are a little—they are a little silly when you watch them today. But uh, there was a whole trend of ruffies at the time that's what they were called um of of those kind of like violent exploitation movies and uh they were probably the foremost practitioners in them
0: she was also tied up with the Alan Shackleton snuff debacle that happened where Alan Shackleton um, recut one of their films and tacked something on the end which allegedly was the real murder of a, a human being a woman um and then released it with that sort of like caveat of like you're watching a real murder which didn't actually happen that it of course is a is fake and it's a hoax, but you know this brought so much attention, and that movie ended up making a ton of money as, just off its notoriety, which uh Roberta Finlay seems to be predominantly pissed off because she and her husband, who actually made the film, did not get any enough money from it. I think they only made like ten thousand dollars off the off the film itself
1: and in fairness, the success of Snuff really had nothing to do with the movie they made i mean they went yeah. they went down to South America and made a very bad movie. Uh, vaguely inspired by the Manson family, just a really boring horror movie. And then, yeah, Alan Shackleton shot this like very fake-looking snuff scene that was added to the end of the movie. And then, yeah, it was released with this publicity campaign of like, I think the tagline was a, a movie that could have only been made in South America, where life is cheap. And you know <laughs> the the opening scene, you know, the opening weekend there were protests, women against pornography, that the groups like that. You know, picketing the theater. And then, yeah, the second anybody saw the movie, they realized they'd been had. But Alan Shackleton, she left Michael Findley for Alan Shackleton. And Michael Findlay died tragically in 1977 in a very notorious incident. He was decapitated by a helicopter blade on the roof of the Pan Am building. And actually, he had just perfected this new 3D process. He had the patent on this new 3D process that I believe was quite an influential 3D process. I think it was like a genuinely important innovation that he had made. He'd made it more portable or something like that. But he had been in Taiwan and had worked on a number of 3D martial arts movies, including Hmm. The Magnificent Bodyguards with Jackie Chan and a couple of other ones. Um so he was gearing up for a whole new like second act as this 3D guru when he was killed but they were you know in the midst of divorcing when she got with Alan Shackleton who was this distributor and she made a couple of movies for him um you know porn films Angel on Fire I think was the first one and then uh, she left him when he refused to pay her I think I think he might have been physically abusive as well um she Got together with Walter Sear, who uh, would be her partner in business and in life, basically until his death in 2010. Uh, and together they produced and she directed many, many films, uh, a lot of pornography, and it was very cost efficient because he had the studio, he had all the equipment. Um, they did everything. They wrote. They they directed. All the the main expenses were just getting the film stock and hiring the people, so they just churned out one movie after another, sold them one after another, and a lot of those porn films, uh, ones called Fantasex, there's uh, a- any anyone but my husband, uh, Sweet Pumpkin, I love you, you know, a lot of them are like a notch above, you know, the industry standard. Uh, she was interested in directing the dialogue scenes and. The dialogue scenes in those movies are a little bit better, typically, than uh, most of the movies. And a-, a Woman's Torment is probably, at least of the ones I've seen, is the best of that period. It's, like, quite effective. Like, it would actually, you could play that to people as just a straight exploitation movie, and I mm-hmm. think I think people would enjoy it.
0: Well, and Walter Sear, we should say also, at uh, that era, was doing all of the music for her films, which are really good. Like, the soundtracks of these films are, like, a cut above anything you're going to see. Very, very comparable to, like, um, John Carpenter kind of films.
1: And, you know, he founded the Sear Studio in New York, which since his death in 2010, she has managed. And the Sear Studio is a very important studio. David Bowie, Paul McCartney, a million other people at that level uh, Sonic have recorded U. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it still operates if you email them. You know, she's the one answering the emails. I was talking to someone recently, actually. You know who's uh, a friend of a friend is making a movie in New York and like they were calling the Sear studio and they were talking to this woman named Roberta you know to do the soundtrack of the film and they realized, oh wait a minute that's that's Roberta findlay so she's out there <laughs> she's 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 working you know. Uh, had a very successful, you know, second or third act.
0: Now we have all of that behind us. (laughs) Will, what's the movie Primeval about from 1988?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, as you alluded to earlier, there is some unpleasant stuff in this movie. Um, Not so much what it depicts, but more what it, you know, implies about some of the characters' past. So it opens, there's an opening scene in the 13th century during the Black Death where this monk, Thomas Seton, which I believe was the name of an actual uh, religious philosopher or, or writer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not completely up on my history of the Catholic Church, but um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think the real Thomas Seton did what the one in this movie does. Um, <laughs> but but uh, uh, yeah, Thomas Seton dramatically splits with the Church to head the creation of a new sect devoted to the worship of Satan – and he's dealing in some dark forces so he and his followers unlock the key to immortality and uh, cuts forward flashes forward to the present day in new england and uh they're still out there uh doing this this cult is still doing the devil's work and it it promises their followers you know 13 years of immortality basically per the sacrifice of a blood relative there's this Businessman character, this this wealthy man who's in his eighties named George, who uh, looks like he's in his fifties, and some years ago he sacrificed uh, his uh, his daughter, and now he wants to sacrifice his granddaughter. And this guy is a very bad person. Like we find out, and again, content warning: we find out that when his granddaughter was a child, he committed uh, some. Child sexual abuse to her. He put her into child pornography. None of this is depicted. It's just stated in the dialogue. But now she's grown up. Her name is Alexandra, played by uh, an actress named Christina Moore. Uh, uh, She's grown up to be somewhat sexually dysfunctional. Uh, She's still a virgin. She has a fiance uh, who she's never consummated with because of this trauma. But nevertheless, uh, Seton and and the father are trying to basically bring her into this cult so that they can sacrifice her so that he can you know the grandfather can get uh, uh, further immortality. So that's basically the plot. That's the stakes of the movie. Is that fair to say? Oh, there's also a kind of Renfield-like character, a sort of like janitor <clears throat> character who's yes. out like uh, kidnapping people, re- recruiting sacrifices in the hopes of. Uh, getting some of this immortality for himself, and things don't turn out too well for him. I think those no. are the major <laughs> characters. No, so am I missing yeah. anything?
2: I mean, there's also the like detective doing detective stuff, and mm-hmm. then there's also the like twist because you forgot it was existing. The nun who goes undercover as uh, of a Satanist. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes,
1: that I like that too. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very. Tapping into the satanic panic stuff of the the late eighties. Uh, if people aren't familiar with this, which I'm, I'm not sure how you couldn't be at this point because there's just so much media about it, especially <laughs> but it's now. Coming this re-evaluation, back, baby, because it's coming <laughs> we're, back. We're, we're into it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Is there's this whole trend where like uh, there was a trend in psychology where people were being hypnotized with um, and the idea that you could recover memories that something so terrible could mm. happen to you that you would bury them deep inside you, and the only way to get it back would be to uh, to be hypnotized and bring it out this is not a real thing. It, it Memories do not work like that. And in fact, what is happening is that uh, whoever is working with you, either intentionally or unintentionally, is planting these quote-unquote memories or these ideas in your head, and you are interpreting them as actual memories. Now, this happened with a number of people believing that these terrible satanic rituals had happened to them. Usually they were being subjected to by their families. And uh this just kind of escalated at this specific daycare where these kids were being hypnotized and were being told that uh, we're coming up with these absolutely wild stories being led by the adults, all it physically impossible, uh, that they were being like flown across the world in like a quarter of an afternoon when they were at daycare. Um, but people, you know, were people's lives were ruined based on this. So there was this whole idea that these satanic cults were running the world, that they were everywhere, that they were injuring children, they were killing people. Uh, And of course, all of this was proven to be absolute bunkum. But this is exactly what this film is preying on, that this is active, that the social elites are doing this. And also, I think this is very reactionary to like, you know, fuck the Wall Street crowd because that's what's happening here as well.
2: I also like when we, the interesting thing about Roberta Findlay with her resistance to, you know, being an auteur or having these, you know, various feminist views is the the four or five movies I dipped into all kind of deal with, if not satanic cults, like it's kind of just masculine conspiracies against the women lead characters, you know, whether it's neglect, uh, whether it's uh, uh, your apartment buildings, a portal to hell, uh, (laughs) stuff like that. But it's like, uh, she reminds me a lot of like Terrence Davies, who we talked about before, who is a gay filmmaker, but is like, (laughs) I do not have gay pride (laughs) because being gay is shameful yet (laughs) is accidentally making incredibly moving, important gay works constantly. And I think that, yeah, the weird thing is, is all she often has a character that is a woman who is traumatized and who is told, you know, you're overreacting, but then is also slowly being drawn into what is an actual worse than she could even imagine nightmare. And yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see the repetition. So I I do feel like the satanic stuff in this one, it's exploiting that obviously, but it's also kind of interesting to see that she repeats this kind of vibe even in non-satanic versions throughout her her kind of career
1: yeah i think it's possible the horror films are more conducive to a kind of feminist reappraisal than the porn films are Mm -hmm. some of which some of which are a little gross um but (laughs) you know even though i'm sure she would not have considered herself like particularly interested in telling women's stories you know you can't deny that these this canon of like five movies that she made in the 80s um there were certain stories she gravitated to whether consciously or subconsciously and uh that's what they are now all the satanic panic stuff i'm sure she had no like high-minded artistic reasons for going for that but it is interesting to watch this movie just as a document of that time and that's one of the things that exploitation movies as we said before can be useful for like you know horror movies and exploitation movies are about like prodding whatever you know whatever the anxieties of society are at that at that moment if they don't do that they're not successful Those are the ones that catch the zeitgeist. Now, I don't know if this one really caught the zeitgeist at the time, but nevertheless, it was an attempt to. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a document of yeah, it is a document of this is what was marketable at the time. This is what people were worried about. This is, this was a premise that could be sold at the time.
0: On top of that, I think she's just really into this occult stuff. Like mm-hmm. the authentic- the length she goes for the authenticity. So a bunch of the props are from this place called The Magical Child, uh, which was in Brooklyn. It, it closed actually fairly recently. It used to be the Warlock Shop. It was run by uh, Herman Slater and his partner. He was a gay man. And they apparently would like host these uh, these giant parties in the back and like they were they were practicing Wiccans uh, at one point in 1972 he presented the Inquisitional Bigot of the Year Award to NBC during a guest cool. appearance on the Today Show for an episode of Macmillan and Wife that had taken witchcraft and corrupted it into devil worship rituals for the plot. So he was very much about like promoting the Wiccan lifestyle. He was also very famous for ensuring that children were not involved in anything. Like they were not allowed on the premises they were not allowed to attend any of these parties like just so that that was a very clear distinction. These are all consenting adults who are having massive orgies in the back of our bookshop. Um, but almost all the props are from there. Uh, they recite in the movie like the act- one of the actual Black Mass rites uh, from a book called Misa Niger, which was actually also fairly recently written, which is from The Magical Child. Like, it's it's all pretty. Like, you do not have to go to these lengths to make this yeah. as authentic as he did.
2: I was going to say, Becky, also if people are more interested in that part, Uh, That shop actually plays a large part in uh, the Oracle, her other yeah. horror movie they go there there's a guy who looks exactly like herman slater so i feel like <laughs> she even casts somebody who's meant to be him or might be a herman slater uh you know pseudonym einar o peterson who only <laughs> appears in that film uh so yeah it is it's interesting because it is obvious that she either had a friendship or connection with this occult store as well so maybe uh, yeah i don't know it's so weird and i mean i, I like like this we're all getting high minded t- to a movie where I think Satan gets stabbed in the penis at the end of the film. Correct. So it's like, it's not a, Can we we're, talk we're, it? just, we're maybe yeah. overthinking it sometimes.
0: As we started talking about the Imp Puppet, why don't we end talking about the <laughs> Devil Puppet here? Because I actually love, <laughs> love the Devil love Puppet. It, I think love it. he's love awesome. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great.
2: Was, I, I think the last yeah. 10
1: minutes of this movie are just spectacular. Uh, some real. I think they're, first of all, I think they actually are beautifully photographed. Mm-hmm. um but yeah they they really deliver and you know when you when you look online about some of the reviews that have been written about this movie over the year i think this movie has been a little bit underestimated like I, i'm not going to make a case for this as like a great movie or anything but i think it works i think it has mm-hmm. i think the plot works yeah. i think it has a, a good sense of unease all the way through i think the horror moments when they come are very effective and um yeah i i think it, it's had a reputation over the years as a, as a sort of bad movie, just because it sort of initially presents as a bad movie and because it had the wrong distribution or something like that, you know?
0: And as we just wrap up, finally, uh, she basically said that this is what, this is one of, I think it is her final movie or one of her final movies. There might be one more, uh, just in terms of the timeline, but she decided to get out of this market because she said there was no one left to sell garbage to. <laughs> now, out of curiosity, Will, how is that true or was it just the distribution market was closing?
1: Well, she made a movie after this called Band, which is a uh, m- kind of rock music comedy, which was unreleased for like 35 years. It actually just came out on Blu-ray and I'm, I'm sad to report that it is not a a lost masterpiece. (laughs) You can, you watch it and you understand why it didn't get distribution, but I guess (laughs) she and Walter Sear just lost a lot of money on that movie. They couldn't get it sold. I'm also sure that like in the eighties, you know, uh, movie studios perhaps hadn't quite fully um, come to terms with the video market. Uh, I think there probably was more f- more flexibility, more freedom in the eighties because there were all these video stores all over America that just needed stuff for the walls, and you know had to fill their shelves. And so certain distributors could count on: well, if we sell it to X number of video stores at X amount of money, we could, and we film it for Y budget, we're guaranteed this amount of profit. Mm-hmm. And you know maybe the market did get more compet- competitive in the nineties. I am inclined to think that, you know, probably she saw that uh, if she had to were to continue working in the 90s, the budgets probably would have shrunk a little bit. And since she's somebody who is uh, astute with the dollar, who follows the yeah. market closely, I'm inclined to take her at her word to the degree that she either was not going to get the creative satisfaction or was not going to get the kind of uh, financial remuneration she was expecting and, you know, maybe, maybe things are just doing really well at the Sierra studio as well. I mean, you look at the list of all the bands that have recorded there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I like to think, I hope she misses filmmaking a little bit. I mean, she must, you know, uh, with all the creativity that she put into some of these movies. Um, but I'm glad she's getting some kind of reappraisal now.
0: At least just a, uh, a reintroduction. Yes, just yeah. a reintroduction to the general populace. And with that, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for uh, diving into these with us. I uh, really yeah. appreciate that.
2: Thanks for having me. And yeah, like I say, uh leather jacket love story. Great David Dakota movie to dig up. And I, I of the uh, Roberta Findlay horrors I've seen, I was very into the Oracle. That's kind of the the wackiest, most fun sit down with your friends one. Also, if anybody's rich, uh, she always says she will come back if somebody funds her to make a version of Melville's Pierre, which is an insane (laughs) book. And I would love to see her take on it because that would be amazing.
1: All right, let's all right, let's all let's all pitch in some of our savings. Let's do it. <laughs> crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing.
2: The future I think we could all pitch in all our savings and probably not get close to the budget <laughs> you want. Uh,
0: Will Sloan, thank you once again for joining us, for bringing two uh, people and films that you are clearly passionate about. Your expertise is always appreciated. Oh, well, thank you. How can people find out more of your interesting stories and things you have to say? Well, I
1: have two podcasts, believe it or not. I'm more podcast than man. I, uh, one is, called, <laughs> one is called The Important Cinema Club, which is about film history, which I co host with a uh, past guest of this podcast, Justin DeClue. I have a culture and politics podcast called Michael and Us, which I host with my buddy Luke Savage.
0: And I'm on Twitter at Will Sloan, Esq. Awesome. And you can join us in two weeks where we're headed to 1991. We'll be kicking it off with someone who is actually there making movies during the new queer cinema movement. We'll be joined by Bruce LaBruce. And we'll be looking at Edward II and Young Soul Rebels. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform find us on facebook instagram twitter at hollywood suite hollywood suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s 80s 90s and 2000s always uncut and always commercial free hollywood suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on 4 HD channels and hollywood suite on demand subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. the A year in film podcast is hosted by becky shrimpton Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Will Sloan as guests. Supervised producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.